I didn't join GM because of where we've been. I joined GM because of where we're going. Welcome to The Talent Blueprint, your guide to building a talent-first company. Today's episode features an interview with Kyle Lagunas, head of talent attraction, sourcing, and insight at General Motors. The Talent Blueprint is brought to you by Beamery. Beamery's talent lifecycle management platform makes it possible for companies to deliver more human talent experiences and unlock the skills and potential of their global workforce using industry-leading AI. Welcome to our inaugural episode. I am Sultan, president at Beamery, and today I am joined by an incredible guest, Mr. Kyle Lagunas. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. Oh, it's so good to see you. I'm excited to be here. Yeah, it's been a while. Well, excited uh, to, to be talking today, uh, first off, about your background and some of the uh, amazing things that you're doing at General Motors. Uh, so, so let's get into it. Our first segment, The Blueprint. It's a blueprint. Just screw up a little blueprint. And it's right here in this here blueprint. And uh, talk about how you think about talent in your organization. So to kick off, tell me a little bit about General Motors, the scope of your role there. So to be honest, I really didn't know much about the company before I joined, which is part of the challenge that we have. Many people are in the same boat. If you think about General Motors, you're probably going to go right to auto manufacturer and that is where we have been for a long time. But I didn't join GM because of where we've been. I've joined GM because of where we're going and really focused on innovating as a platform and not just as um, you know the largest manufacturer of automobiles. We're going through a lot of change. We're looking at pursuing our fully electric future and we're ahead of schedule, which is really exciting. But we're also recognizing the need to innovate across multiple aspects of the way the world moves. Things like IoT, things like a lunar rover, locomotives, boats. It's really crazy the different areas that that uh, that we're working towards, especially because all of it requires talent <laughs> and new talent, new skills new backgrounds, new mentalities than what we've had before. And the reason I, I started by saying, you know, I'm, I thought of us as just an automotive uh, company before. So I'm in Boston and most of the talent that we've hired um, traditionally has been in our backyard in uh, Michigan or, you know, around one of our manufacturing plants, innovation centers, people who know the big three or whatever, and um, now we're trying to engage talent um, around the world, and we need them to know who we are and what we're doing, what we're trying to accomplish. And it's it's a big challenge. There's a lot to get done. It sounds like based on that level of innovation and direction change in company strategy, pretty much everything from the talent side would be would also be open to disruption. Your brand, your uh, locations, as you say. If you had to describe just in a couple of sentences your strategy for talent at GM, how would you describe it? Uh, break everything. Um, <laughs> <laughs> you know, I, I think that many people can relate with um, the business's aspirations and talent acquisitions realities. There's a, a wide gap. I talk about us as the automaker's children instead of shoemaker's children. I'm really trying to modernize our operation 
and uh, empower our recruiting function to perform at a greater scale than they ever have before. And um, it requires culture change. It requires um, digital transformations. It requires a lot of blood, sweat, and tears. But here we are. And when it comes to empowering people and going through that culture change, how do you approach that for your own team and managing your own talent? I'm trying to focus more on solving fundamental problems that they have, foundational issues. And there are plenty. And we're coming at this from a systems perspective, but also from a strategy perspective. On the strategy side, which is honestly the easiest part, is thinking of a, a better way, getting the all the different business units and their HR leadership to commit to a moderately accurate forecast for headcount every quarter, and then us aligning each of the deli- recruiting delivery teams around our execution. We're calling it our, our go-to-market plan for each quarter. And based on our, our resources and capacity, telling them, here's business, here's what you're telling us you need. Well, here's what we can actually accomplish based on the resources that we have and, and you know, working towards that goal. On the other side, the tooling and, and, uh, and resourcing for the recruiting functions we have two different AI projects. We have conversational AI. We have AI matching and scoring. Then we have a, a CRM project and a new career site project. We also have a sourcing, uh, like a smart sourcing project underway. We are throwing literally everything at the problem. And it's partly why I'm here is because there's a lot of stuff, but there's a single solution. Yeah, absolutely. As part of that, you you started touching on some of the definitions of success. You've talked about the forecasting for headcount and thinking about whether you have the right number of resources. If you had to really summarize what the most important metrics to your team's success as you're looking at them now, what would those be? The cost of talent is exorbitantly high everywhere. The, eff- the, the, the effort required is big. So we're watching cost, but we're not beholden to it now. And the competition being what it is, time to hire, time to fill is also something that we monitor, but we're not living and dying by. I think the big KPI, because honestly, getting the forecast from all parts of the business required a lot of work from our leader. Um, we're, I think we're more focused on executing against that exercise, you know? And so um, every, I think, week, honestly, right now, our uh, head of TA is looking at our uh, recruiting velocity and just doing, you know, the simple math that if we're going to get to goal, we need to make X number of hires this week. We get X number of offers out is what we're looking at. Um, and then for my team, I, I run um, sourcing and marketing as uh, part of my program. That means how many applicants do we need? How many leads do we need to generate? You know, what kind of web traffic do we need to make sure that we're driving? But it all comes from focusing right on execution and just getting to that number. It's interesting hearing you talk about the the importance of predictability when it when it comes to uh, meeting your forecast. And it it takes me back to you know, when we were first starting Beamery. We were looking at how is it that commercial teams have. Uh, better predictability with revenue than talent and HR teams have with with hiring targets. And a lot of it boils down to the kind of data you need to have, you know, pipeline coverage and visibility that is often 
missing in in uh, in traditional recruiting processes. And it sounds like you're you're, you're trying to tackle some of those underlying technologies and things that will they'll, they'll bring that kind of predictability. Yeah, I mean, we are, but it is. I think it's also a matter of having the rigor. And I mean, if you look at sales and marketing functions, I mean, it is pretty rigorous. You know, I mean, I'm I'm talking to my sourcing leader now about implementing basically what a, a deal desk. You know, like looking at pipeline review, how much, not to micromanage the people, but instead to see gaps as they're before they grow. You know, or to identify market challenges that we're running into that are going to slow us down. But we're trying to get more rigorous. And I'll be honest, Sultan, people are they don't love it. Like. When there's a gap in your data, that's when your expertise comes in. If my boss is looking at our numbers weekly, I need to be looking at our efforts weekly and trying to close the, you know, find whatever threads can tie through. But yeah, the rigor is creating a lot of stress in an already tense recruiting environment. I can imagine, Kyle. And uh, the segues nicely into the next section of our discussion, the journey where we'll talk about your strategies for managing the talent lifecycle and actually executing on these uh, internal decisions. A real journey. Become the journey. journey. Just to unpack some of the things you you mentioned there, one thing that you've touched on is the buy-in you've had to get from your own leadership into improving the talent lifecycle. Bringing in these technologies that you you started to, to bring in Tell us a bit about how you navigated getting that buy-in for those technologies and where you've succeeded and where you've had challenges. Sultan, it's been the easiest part. You know, business leaders today know how hard it is out there. They recognized day zero, before I even actually started getting paid by GM, I was already jumping into the RFPs for these global software projects. And... There is my boss. It makes me laugh because he really does mean it. But he's like his mantra is WKW, whatever Kyle wants. And it's because it's not just like here, go and have a big party at a conference and, you know, at South by Southwest. It's not like that. It's like you're here because I trust you. You know the problems that we have. And if you tell me that you need something to solve these problems, then you've, I'm going to get it for you. It's astounding to me, Sultan, to see the level of support all the way up to the C-suite for resourcing this recruiting operation, for innovating the way that we attract talent. They're hungry for it. And we're honestly, candidly, we're, we're overdue in TA here. And so we're playing a lot of catch up, which is why I've got six projects going all at once. But the support is really easy. It's delivering on those expectations that gets to be really challenging. Telling these executives who are gung ho, do whatever you want, get whatever you like, whatever you need, I've got it. On the other side, showing them how it's paying off. And I'll give you an example of just some of what what I'm up against. I finished three RFPs in my first six, eight weeks here, and I wrapped them up with final selections. And it took us another two months, three months to get through legal. And I had actually been tried to be really proactive with that. I engaged our general counsel, like just somebody from general counsel, and trying to onboard them to the, our projects and help them understand what is 
you know, what is this AI going to do? And what is this CRM? And, you know, why can't we just have IT build our website and stuff like that? And thought I had really educated them to, you know, accelerate that cycle time. And still, it's just, you know, they're not speaking the same language. It's at the top of the food chain, they're ready to innovative, innovate, they're ready to be bold. But in the organization itself, there's still so many legacy practices that are major obstacles. And we see that all the time. And it just goes to show that advice to other HR and TA leaders going into this type of change management and purchasing, just how much thought you have to put into the process and thinking through the risks that might emerge from these kinds of internal stakeholders, whether it's legal or otherwise. And which parts of either the recruiter experience or just of the, the talent lifecycle as a whole have created the most uh, excitement uh, or urgency for you uh, to bring about change? You, you've ch- touched on a number of things from the, uh, the front-facing uh, employer brand parts, such as the career sites, where you have this new face of what GM will be with Luna projects and these other exciting opportunities. But you also have uh, some of the more fundamental questions around how do we think about skills of our existing employees and what they might need to have? Um, and uh, how do we hire for potential? How do we think about these scenarios in which you should be recruiting externally versus thinking internally? Uh, it sounds like you're going to be ju- juggling a lot of these things in parallel. So which elements of this, this life cycle for talent or the experience of recruiters have been the highest focus and, and getting the most uh, internal urgency and generating the most excitement? So part of the challenge is we're first-gen CRM. So they have only been ATS. And when you only have ATS, that means you're only interacting with talent when they are in process. And so if they're not a viable candidate for the role right in front of them, then that's it, you know, unless they come back and apply for another job that's a better fit. And so the value opportunity that we have to create a positive experience with talent is just limited there. There are also, I mean, everyone is looking at CRM to solve so much of what we've got because it's an engagement tool. It's not just like a database. So we're also looking at onboarding from the moment that an offer is accepted until somebody's, you know, first, the end of somebody's first week, identifying touch points that we can can drive to say, hey, here's what's next, you know, or hey, look, here's this cool video about one of the projects you're going to be working on, like just stuff that maybe... I mean, I'm, I'm a hiring manager. Onboarding is mostly on me, and I've got a lot more to do than onboarding. <laughs> to be able to, in, to create richer experience, closing that gap is really important. We look at um, early careers. is a huge, It's like one-third of our hiring is early career talent, and we're interacting with people who um, might be going into freshman year, but we're really only prioritizing people that are – intern candidates or entry-level hire candidates. So we're really focused on specific graduation date because we have such limited capacity. If they don't fit exactly what we need, then we're we're not really going to spend any time with them. And that's such a loss. So opening up the talent journey for early career talent from high school programs, you know, having one of our, our engineers go and speak at a high school about what we're doing here and then engaging with them for the next three years. Like, we just don't have the opportunity to do that with an ETS. So just really basic stuff. But it sounds like you're also opening up um, an opportunity for 
perspective on hiring to grow. I think the the thing that we're starting to see as um, as a new pattern for many organizations emerging out of pandemic and the many things that have happened to the talent landscape in the last two years is this increasing collaboration between the HR organization that's traditionally looked at employees and the TA organization that's traditionally looked more at recruiting and the increasing need to uh, look at synergies and partnerships across that journey. And I'd love to hear, especially with what you mentioned with early talent, whether you've seen you know, a change or an evolution in how to think about, you know, adjacent skills and and the growth of the talent you'll hire. And, and, and has that been sort of an emerging theme for you guys as well? It has, but not in early careers. Actually, it has been an opportunity for us in diversity recruitment, looking at non-traditional talent pools and taking people who, like for myself, I don't have a college degree and I'm like dropped out of college twice. I, the early career team would have never taken a first look at me, much less a second. And recruiters just have to prioritize their day. You know, in, in running high volume, high impact programs like we have, they don't have the opportunity to really look at a profile. What we're looking at now is finding ways to quantify somebody's just skills and so we can can actually enable more skills-based hiring, we see that it astronomically has a greater impact on the diversity in our pipelines. If we're not requiring a degree, or if we're not requiring a GPA even, I mean, there are just so many levers you can pull. That's really, really helpful. We also have, Sultan, I, I got to find the program to share with you, but we have, look, we, we've been building combustible engines our whole forever, Right. But now we're moving into fully electric vehicles. We have incredible engineers. We have incredible talent that has been here and a part of that business to date and finding opportunities to upskill them and re-engage them and find the career path that's there that still exists for them or a new career path for them. HR can send out an email saying, hey, you have access to Degreed go and, you know, here's a course that we created for you, like a learning path we created for you. Like that's, I don't know about you, that doesn't, I'm not really interested in that. But instead, if we can build out like an internal campaign, you know, where we're really targeting this talent who we've heavily, we're heavily invested in. These people have been with us for years and getting them into the very real opportunities that we have for them in the future it's honestly early days, Sultan. We're solving, like I said at the top, some more foundational problems. That's why I call it foundational because we're building on these pieces and kind of blocking and tackling it all. It makes me really happy to, to hear you say that as uh, it takes me back to why we we first started Beamering. And uh, you, you probably remember this from the many, many chats we've had about creating equal access to work, which is, which is our mission here at Beamery. But it really starts with treating people based on their potential and not based on the passport lottery and you know where people went to school and so forth as the driver of the access to work that you you create and i think even though it is as you say foundational hearing the that you guys are taking that lens to to both the recruiting experience and otherwise is um is is so great and so important so we've talked about a number of amazing things you guys are are thinking about with strategies in the talent journey i think this uh, this makes a a good segue to our next section, the uh, the stress test. You're stressed. You're stressed. Now I'm stressed about being stressed. Everything's going to be fine. Where we can talk about some of the biggest challenges that you've been facing. And uh, 
you've you've started to touch on on some of those in terms of the the challenges of getting the recruiting teams to actually go through change management and look at you know new processes and um, and have to think about some of the things that sales teams might be doing for years but recruiting teams haven't done before. Talk me through Kyle some of the biggest challenges you've had uh, and are are facing and, and tackling. So part of it is, and it actually is connected to the conversation about skills and and you know what's possible is there's there's just so much to be done. You know, there's just so much to solve for. And there is an urgency around it where it's like solving it all at once. People just, everyone wants all of it done. Having to prioritize is actually really difficult. You know, I mean, because I'm having to prioritize across the delivery teams. And what am I going to do is tell any of them that this is less important than that? You know, and um, how do I do that in a way that still convey his respect for their their work? But that's part of it is just prioritizing the asks, prioritizing the work. And we're really just doing it based on the, um, fortunately, I don't have the biggest team. So I can say, look, I've got seven sourcers. There's no way I can take every one of your requests. We're going to focus on the biggest growth areas for the year. So trying to like get, the personal aspects of the asks out so that, you know, there's less sting when I say I, I can't get to this right now. That's one of the big ones. We talked a little bit earlier about reporting and just comfort levels with data. Getting into the forecasting and the, go, the quarterly go-to-market is a really important step forward in getting to more of a business function and less of an administrative function where we are driving outcomes and not just servicing requests. But I really need to get more comfort with data and gaps in data. And that's like another full-time job <laughs> is getting people to a place where they are, are okay pulling numbers, where they understand how to tell a story about the work they're doing and not just sending over whatever they pulled out, whatever report they ran out of LinkedIn recruiter or something. I mean, data is the one language that the entire business speaks And I think I need to get us a little bit more fluid or fluent, (laughs) maybe not fluid. I really love that sentiment of data, the one language the entire business speaks. I think you you touch on uh, an important theme also in getting change management right, uh, how to, to align on the outcomes that we all can agree on and measure on together. And again, I think touches on this element of bridging the gaps between recruiting and HR and how to focus on the kind of same objectives. And one thing that we've started to see happening, again, as a function of starting to bring some of the data sets together is companies starting to look at join metrics like uh, the not just the number of hires we've made, but number of the hires we've made that have still stayed with us a year later. It's really interesting. I don't think you can get to the shared metrics until you dig deeper into your and get more comfortable sharing some of the like the homework. Like I'm I'm trying to get sort my sourcing team to report out to my recruiting delivery teams. And there's a resistance because they're like, well, I don't need to be scrutinized. They don't need to know what I'm doing every single day. I'm like, no, you're you're right. But then I have one of my teams pulled their program report and I'm looking at the number of messages they sent and I see they've had a 99% open rate for their messages. 99% of the messages they sent were open. And I'm like, team, this is amazing. And I click further and there's a 74% up click-through rate to apply. 74. 
I'm like, what the hell? Yeah. Why don't you want to share your homework? <laughs> you know, like this is really great stuff. Uh, yes. We also had like 6,000 candidates sourced, but that's because we only targeted 8,000 and all of them converted. That is the big win. That's what we can tell recruiting. Hey, we've got br- great brand equity. And here is how that plays out. I don't think you can get to the big wins until you start to share more of the small one. Like, hey, let me show you this cool thing I think I'm seeing over in my little space. I'm like, wow, that I hadn't thought about that over in mine. Anyway. Trying to get people more geeky about this data because I think it can it can really build more bridges, and I think they're worried about it being used as um, cannon fodder, you know, and to break down. And it's really not. I'd love to know, you know, now that you're nine months in, what's one piece of advice you'd give to your your past self if you were to speak to yourself from nine months ago? I see, and this is way off from anything we talked about so far, but. Being emotionally available to your team is a team during change in transition is really important, but it's a double-edged sword. I've been really emotionally available to be supportive and to be, you know, approachable and to show that it's okay to be vulnerable and to acknowledge, you know, good days and bad. Things are getting really down to the like really tense now we've got we've got to execute you know last year was evaluate and survive and plan now it's build and execute and now my emotional availability also means that they can tell when i'm really frustrated with them they can tell when i'm really not happy with what i'm seeing or or you know what they're doing and now i have to rein that in or rein it in and also acknowledge it with them. It's much different when you're leading people under duress. <laughs> I'm really trying to channel it to, to help them. And, and um, yeah, it's, it's a little bit of a personal journey. So I wasn't looking out for it coming in. I was just thinking, oh, yeah, you know, they just need somebody to care about them. And I care too much. Now I need to care for them. And that's a little different. It sounds also like the other side of the leading from the front that um, that you've you've done to not only tackle head on the things you're asking of people, but also to I, I guess build the the compassion and empathy as part of that availability. Because if if you're navigating that kind of change, it it helps to to be to both relate and be relatable. And it's uh, I I think it's one of those things that uh, is hard to find enough time for, but is, uh, is is extremely important. This will actually take us nicely to our, our next segment, the, the future. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the future. You came back five years from now and uh, and, and spoke to your, your past self. What do, you, what do you imagine would have changed? Data ecosystems are a complete mess. If I'm looking at my core system of record, and now these systems of engagement that we're building, I don't think I see enough co-innovation across the ecosystem on these fronts. Everyone has big ideas, but I'm not seeing as many big solutions as I need. I hope that in five years that with APIs being where they are and um, with the ecosystem maturing, that we will have made progress. If I look at in sales and marketing tech, I think that they've gotten there that they, you know, from one vendor to the next, they know what the core data sets are. They know what people need to report out on. So I'm really hoping that that is something that 
sees some progress. Less sexy, hard to sell to a VC. That's one. I would really like to see what happens with CRM in as it goes into the next gen. You know, we're a first gen, but I know that there are companies that have, you know, 10 years in, they're maybe third gen CRMs, and we're still trying to do some of the same things. I really want to look at CRM as enabling some more experiential marketing um, and, um, you know, opening up to multiple channels. Right now we're looking at email and text, but integrating something with with chat. Who knows what will actually happen with VR? be really interesting to see what kind of levels of experience we can create. Is there anything else that if you sort of dare to dream, you'd uh, you'd like to to see being different either in technology or, you know, the experience for candidates or employees? Yeah, you know, I really hope that we stop waiting for things to go back to normal. Things will never be the way they were. COVID has catalyzed a change in human existence. And I think that the sooner we embrace that, the sooner we can... I think work through some of the latent anxiety that continues to nag at us and to eat at us. I see in healthcare people getting completely burnt out. The same thing is happening in recruiting where the business is just wanting to rush all the way forward and they don't recognize that until we have solid answers on return to work as just an example whether someone's going to be required to work in an office or not, that that's going to make a decision for them, that we need to embrace maybe being a hybrid forever. And that's a good thing. You know, that's that's a societal change that I think that needs to happen over the next five years. And it's been especially, I don't know about your experience, Sultan, this month, you know, but early 2022, I think people are really tense because the businesses are operating as if we were going back to normal and there, there is no going back. And it's created ex- an extreme amount of stress and pressure on, on these functions. Cause we're trying to talk to candidates who are very real and we don't have, we don't know what the script is. Couldn't agree more. And as you say, you know, we need to learn to embrace the positives uh, of what the new normal is, you know, hybrid is definitely here to stay. And at the same time, start to adjust to some of the new challenges with that. We will wrap with a final question. What's the what's the best piece of advice you've received uh, in in the time that you've been moving into this this role in, in TA and GM or have, uh, I've had in the last 12 months? Pat Smith, who was in, ran ops here when I got here, she said, clear is kind, because I've had to give a lot of feedback to some people. And beating around the bush just isn't helping them. And uh, just being as clear with people as possible when it's the only way to to get things moving in the direction you need them to be. I, I love it. Clear is kind. Well, Carl, thanks. Thanks so much for uh, for the the incredibly candid conversation and for, for your insights. It's been, been a real pleasure. Anytime, Sultan. Happy to join. Thanks for having me. The Talent Blueprint is brought to you by Beamery. Beamery's talent lifecycle management platform makes it possible for enterprises to drive more human talent experiences and unlock the skills and potential of their global workforce with industry-leading AI. Beamery optimizes every step of the talent lifecycle, from sourcing and identifying talent with the right skills and potential, to building and marketing your employment brand, creating an internal talent marketplace, and mobilizing your employees through getting the reporting and talent insights that you need to make better decisions about your workforce. Are you ready to unlock your talent? Learn more at Beamery.com.